Hello and welcome to World History Encyclopedia's podcast, where we put your questions to archaeologists, historians and curators, our experts on history. I'm Fiona Richards and I'm delighted to be here today talking to Professor Eric Klein. An archaeologist and ancient historian by training, Eric specialises in biblical archaeology, the military history of the Mediterranean world and international connections between Greece, Egypt and the Near East during the Late Bronze Age. He is Professor of Classical and Ancient Near Eastern Studies and Anthropology at George Washington University and is an award-winning teacher and author of over 20 books and 130 papers. Eric has excavated at the sites of Tel Kabri and Megiddo in Israel, as well as other sites in Jordan, Egypt, Cyprus, Greece, Crete and the United States. He's also appeared on numerous television programs and documentaries, including programs for the National Geographic and Discovery Channels. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. It's good to be here. So had you always wanted to be an archaeologist? I was seven years old when my mother gave me a book about Troy. And I read the book and announced I was going to be an archaeologist. And that was that. So, you know, like many of us who become archaeologists, I was seven when I decided to do it. So do you have a favorite dig? After all a these favorite years? dig? Yeah, I would say it was Megiddo. I worked there for 10 seasons. Uh, we dug every other year, so it was 20 years. And yeah, I would walk up on top of the mound at five in the morning when we started and would just look over the Jezreel Valley with the sun rising over Mount Tabor and I would just soak it in and just every morning it was absolutely amazing to be there. Of course, then I had to remember that that was Armageddon and you know, it was gonna be the end of the world there someday, but I would say that was my favorite dig. I can completely believe that because I have to say that Pella was mine, same thing, looking over the Jordan Valley, just absolutely beautiful. Okay, so I'm afraid these are a bit sort of classic questions for you, but what would you say the most interesting thing is that you've ever discovered on an excavation? The most interesting thing I've ever discovered, that's tough to answer, of course. I think most archaeologists would have a whole list of things they found the most interesting. I would have to narrow it down to, if I may, to two. One would be the petrified monkey's paw that I found at Tel Anafa, my very first season. Oh, wow. Or at least I thought it was a petrified monkey's paw. It turned out it, it wasn't. It was a little bronze figurine of the Greek god Pan. But it was green, it was small, it was early in the morning, I already kind of had sunstroke, and when I hit it with my little patisse, the digging hammer, it actually flew up in the air. And while it was in the air and kind of going in slow motion, I thought, ah, look, a petrified monkey's paw, because it was green. And then I thought, wait a minute, there weren't any monkeys here in northern Israel way back when. And so when it landed on the dirt again, I picked it up and I could see it was this Hellenistic figurine, which is now in the museum down in Jerusalem. So that was fun, even though it wasn't a petrified monkey's paw, as it turned out. And for years and years and years, I said that was the interesting, most interesting thing I had found. But then in 2013 at Tel Kabri, our Canaanite site, way up, way up in the north of Israel, we found the oldest and largest wine cellar 
from the ancient Near East. And so I think now I would have to say that's my most interesting discovery is an ancient wine cellar which had the equivalent of something like more than 20,000 bottles of wine in today's terms. And we... Oh my goodness. Yeah, we were able to analyze it. We know the ingredients. And if we wanted to, we could recreate it, which someday I hope we will. That would be kind of cool yeah that sounds amazing and were they all lined up like they are in modern wine cellars all the bottles on their sides we think they were originally lined up but when we found them they were all lying on their side they'd all been knocked down because the both the roof and the walls of the building had collapsed and had knocked them over but what was fascinating is they were the best way to describe it is they were shattered in place that is, they were completely intact. And when we dug them up, you could see they still had the whole round shape and all that, but they were smashed mm-hmm. into thousands of, of shirts, but they were held in place by the dirt. So we actually had to take them apart to get them out. So it was really interesting. And what we did was uh, we found the first one about two weeks into the season, and then we did double shifts the rest of the season to get them out because in that first room, we found 40 of them, each of them a meter tall, and each holding about 110 liters of wine. So before we took any of them out, we uncovered all 40 of them and took pictures. And then quickly, actually using LIDAR, we scanned them and measured them in about three hours. If we had drawn them by hand, it would have taken weeks, but we did terrestrial LIDAR and then were able to pull them out. And each each wine jar got its own little milk crate so we could then reconstruct them back in the lab as we had seen them in the field. So that was absolutely fascinating. And we had students there because it was a field school. And so that was why we did double shifts was to let everyone have a chance to excavate them. So we had one group that did the typical hours, 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. But the other group did 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. And we switched the groups every day so that one day you would go out at 5 a.m., next day you would go out at 2 p.m. So nobody got the short end of the stick. What we totally forgot about was that the when you're digging on the terms of the permit, the directors have to be out at the site if anyone is digging. So <laughs> Asaf and I, we had to be out there from 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day, which we hadn't thought about when we decided to do this way of digging. But but it worked. We, we were able to uncover all 40 jars, record them properly, take them out properly, and get it all done before our season ended. So that was, that was exciting. Oh, that sounds really exciting. And interesting that you mentioned the use of LIDAR as well, because obviously I haven't excavated for many years and we didn't have that sort of technology when I was digging. So is that something you use a lot now at, at sites like Cabri? Well, actually, no, not that often. LIDAR is it's mostly used from the air. It's mostly used in helicopters and slow-flying planes like Cessnas to look down through the jungle and and other coverings like that. And I hadn't actually realized until we used it that you could use it at ground level and it simply sits on its tripod and spins around basically. We were able to record, or the team that we hired recorded hundreds 
hundreds of thousands of data points in just a couple of hours. And then we can slice and dice the images to any way we want. So we were, that was where we were able to figure out the capacity of the jars. Looking at them, we had thought, oh, maybe they hold about 50 liters. But in looking at the measurements then, we were able to determine very precisely that they each would have held 113 liters to be specific. Oh. So I've seen other people use LIDAR mostly from the air, but uh, even mm -hmm. when there isn't ground cover, they're trying to map the, the geography of mm -hmm. the area. I don't know. I haven't heard of that many other people that used it the way that we did. Um, it was certainly well worth the money that was involved. What made you decide to use that rather than um, <clears throat> so the geophys thing that people use these days, don't they? You know, on Time Team, that British program, they're always using the geophys to map the, the ground before digging. So I think it's a, right. I think it's a, a similar ground penetrating radar thing. Right, 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 right. So we're talking two different things here and yet similar. They're mm. all remote sensing. But in our case, we didn't need to peer beneath the earth because we already had excavated it. So we needed something that would record. Okay. We basically needed, you know, a, a fancy camera, fancy you know, video. And that's where the LIDAR came in was it was able to that. Okay. We have used the remote sensing that you were just referring to. We've tried a couple of different ones. Uh, electric resistivity, where you stick two poles on the ground and run an electric current between them. And if there's a buried wall, it will break the current and you can see it, quote unquote. We've also used ground penetrating radar and electromagnetivity. Actually, nothing works at our site of Carberry. The ground does not like to yield its secrets <laughs> to remote sensing, in part because we've got lots of layers of little stones in there, but also simply because there's something in the ground. I'm not sure if it's the the type of soil that's in there, but I do know that other sites that have used remote sensing very well, like at Troy, you can look right down through, you can see the lower city without without almost digging it. But even there, if I understand things correctly, they tried eight different types of remote sensing um, techniques before they finally found one type. It was a cesium magnetometer that really worked with their type of soil. So mm. you really have to experiment until you find what works. And we haven't found what works at, at our site yet, though I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. To be able to peer beneath the earth before you dig is, mm. is absolutely wonderful. Uh, let's go to our first question from our WHE reader. Simon Bonington would like to know, as a specialist in military history in the Mediterranean world, have there been any finds from excavations that have changed how you thought about ancient battles or equipment? Well, I would say, well, first of all, for me, no, not in terms of ancient, ancient battles. And for example, at Megiddo, we're still trying to figure out which city it was that Tutmosis III captured. We know from the historical records that he did capture Megiddo, but which layer, you know, is it stratum 10, is it stratum 9, is it stratum 8? But the one thing, and I'm hesitating only because I don't know if it qualifies as ancient, but when we were digging at Megiddo in 2008, and then it continued in 2010, 12, and 14, in 2008, we were digging an area that the University of Chicago had started in 1925, 1926, and then they had abandoned that area. So we had their plans and their photographs. When we went to clear it off, we found that 
what they had drawn and photographed as square and rectangular little rooms had been changed to round rooms round areas and like the stones had been moved and then in and around the stones we found bullet casings and we're like wait what's going on here and at first we're like oh these these are weekend hunters you know just toss them out and then i'm like no wait 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 we're on a dig you keep everything you found you never know and sure enough the you know the one bullet casing which is left after you've fired your bullet and it's ejected from the gun the one bullet casing turned to five, turned to 10, turned to 100, turned to a couple of hundred, and they were all in and around these, what were now round pits, basically. And all of a sudden, we were like, wait, something's going on here. And so we started carefully excavating. We did some research and realized that a battle had taken place at the mound, but it wasn't an ancient battle. It was a battle in 1948 during the Israeli War of Independence. And there was one eyewitness account of a guy who had been there and been interviewed by the author, and that was it. And then suddenly we realized that, first of all, the what were now the round pits were probably for machine guns, And whoever, either the Arab defenders or the Israeli attackers, had moved the stones that Chicago had found, and the round or circular rectangular rooms became these circular firing pits. And so then I thought, huh, this is interesting. Let's take some home. We got permission to take them back to the United States. One of my students then cleaned them off. We found the, what are called, head stamps on the back of them, which say the year that the bullet was made and who made it. You have to interpret it, but it's there. And so I was able to narrow it down to three different types of machine guns. And then I was, I mean, you know how these things work in archaeology. Sometimes it's so happenstance and coincidental. I was chair of our department at the time, and when I got back, we had an academic retreat for all the chairs of the various departments. And I was in line at the buffet for lunch. And the guy next to me was the chair of the forensics department. And so he's like, so what did you do on your summer vacation? And I said, oh, well, actually be very interested. I found some, you know, bullet casings, but we don't know what kind of machine gun it's from. He says, oh, I can help you with that. And he hooked me up with um, somebody that worked at the ATF, right? The Alcohol Tobacco Firearms. And they have they have a building where they've got most every gun known to humans and so I went out there and they had the three machine guns that we had narrowed it down to they fired those three with the same type of ammunition and then we compared it like a ballistics test and we put the one that I had from Megiddo with one of the ones anyway long long story short it was one of the Czechoslovakian machine guns And so we were able to then recreate this battle from 1948 that nobody really knew about. And now we've got the details and we can corroborate that eyewitness report because he said that they were advancing across a field to the British police station. And sure enough, from that part of Megiddo, you you can look across. The police station is now a prison, but it's right there, and it's about mm, 1,200 meters away, and the range of this Czechoslovakian machine gun was 1,500 meters. So the machine guns would have reached, providing covering fire. So 
I know that's not an ancient battle, but it does qualify as what would be called battlefield archaeology. And mm-hmm. for me, though, it it epitomizes what archaeology is all about. We went to that area of Megiddo thinking we were going to dig 8th century BC Neo-Assyrian remains, which is what we knew Chicago had. And instead, we ended up digging a 1948 battle. So I'm like, that's archaeology. But So that was a lot of fun. And it did change our knowledge because now we know what weapons were used. But we still don't know who moved the stones. We don't know if it was the Arab defenders or the Israeli attackers after they captured the mound. So anyway, that was probably more than you or the, the reader wanted to know. But that... No, no, that's fun. <laughs> that's my answer. Love it. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic answer. And it and it does just go to show. You go definitely go expecting one thing and something else turns up, which is why it's fantastic. Never a boring day in archaeology. Never that's, a boring that's what day. I think, anyway. Okay. Another question is from uh, Dallin Gray, who would like to know what is the most dangerous object that you have found on an excavation? So actually that would go hand in glove with the answer that I just gave, because while we were digging that level, we found some of the cartridge cases were not cartridge cases. They were live bullets that hadn't fired for some reason. And I still to this day don't know if they could have exploded or not. But we also did find some mortar caps at, uh, in the same area. And I'm not familiar with that type of ordnance, so I'm not sure if they were exploded or not, but we handled them very gingerly. So that would be the most dangerous object in terms of human uh, manufacture that I found. The other one would be scorpions. I mean, I would consider that yeah. a dangerous object. And we, at most of the sites I've dug at in that area, we've got you know scorpions running around. So you got to be very careful putting on your shoes and all of that. So that's pretty dangerous too. Yeah, I I agree. Thank you very much for that. Another question is from Brianna Baines, and she would like to know what is the most difficult part of field archaeology? I'd like to say that I think it's keeping the sides of my trench straight. Otherwise, you end up with a much smaller space than you started after 10 metres. But what do you think is the most difficult thing while excavating? What is most difficult? Well, every site's different, as you know. But I would say, generally speaking, that what most people find to be most difficult is the physical aspect to it. They have no idea how much hard work it is. Most of the volunteers that come with us that haven't haven't been on dig before, they think it's, you know, dabbling in the dirt with paintbrushes and, and dental tools. But where I've been uh, in the Near East and in Greece, it more usually involves big picks and shovels and wheelbarrows and buckets of dirt, buckets and buckets of dirt that each weigh, what, 10 kilos? And, you know, we've often said that we we misadvertise the excavations. We should call them health and wellness clinics, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> people come and they shed the pounds and put on the muscle. So I would say that that's the most difficult part is the physical. And as you get, as one gets older, 
as I'm finding, it's also harder and harder to kneel down for that many hours per day. So I tend to let the younger ones now do it. And in fact, as an, as an excavation director, I now get to do what I always kind of resented when I was a volunteer. That is, I'll jump down in the trench and I'll mess around a bit to see what's going on. And then I'll turn to the person who's actually in the area and I'll say, okay, carry on, clean up my mess, thanks, and, and leave. <laughs> Oh, yes, you've graduated to that man who stands on the side of the bulk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. wonderful. <laughs> that's so funny. Okay, now let's talk about Megiddo or ancient Armageddon. Digging up Armageddon, your book that was published last year, is all about one of the most important sites I think we could, we could agree on. Its position on a major trade route ensured it was the scene of some epic battles and it's mentioned in Egyptian records as well. The first dig started in 1903. And then it was excavated on and off for a hundred years. It's revealed 20 cities that date between 5000 BCE and 300 BCE. And of course, it's probably best known for being the site of biblical Armageddon. Could you tell us how the site became known as Armageddon? Sure, that's actually a fairly easy question. In Hebrew, it, the words are actually Har Megiddo, meaning the mound or mountain of Megiddo. And in fact, Armageddon was originally spelled with an H. It was Armageddon to begin with. And if you look at some of the earliest versions of the New Testament, which is where Armageddon appears just once in Revelation 16, 16, it was Armageddon. Now, in Greek, though, to put an H, an aspirant, it's really just what looks like an apostrophe today. So over time, when somebody was recopying the manuscript, the, that apostrophe dropped out, it got lost. And so the H went away and it became just Armageddon. And actually, over the years, as they lost the H, they also added an N. So Har Megiddo became Armageddon. And that's what we've got today. So explaining the name is actually fairly simple, except for the fact that there's nothing at the actual site that says, welcome to Megiddo, uh, apart from the sign that we made that we hung on our fence. The the modern name for the site is Tel El Mutaselim, like the, the hill of the governor. And so uh, there have been occasions where we're wondering, are we actually digging at Megiddo? Because before the excavations that you mentioned began, the century of on and off excavations, there was quite a bit of debate about where was Megiddo. They knew it was in the Jezreel Valley, but where was it? So I think by default, it is where we've been. It can't be any other. But there has been nothing found there to completely identify it. We're not unique that way. Uh, at Troy, there's nothing in the late Bronze Age levels that identifies it as Troy either. And yet, by default, it, that most likely is Troy. The later Greeks and Romans thought it was Troy. So this is not uncommon, but that's where the name comes from. So it is, it is Armageddon. And most people don't realize it's a real place. But, but it is. Thanks for explaining that, because I think you're right. A lot of people don't believe that it's actually a real place. And which actually brings me on to my second question about, I've said it was obviously overseas the trade trade route through the valley. But why would you say that this site is so important to the history of the Near East? So Megiddo is at a crossroads. I mean, literally, it's at a crossroads. There is the Way of the Sea, the Via Maris, which is the international road that in antiquity ran from uh, Egypt in the south up to Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and Mesopotamia, 
what would be today like Iraq and northern Syria. So if you wanted to go from Egypt up to Anatolia or Mesopotamia or from those regions down to Egypt, you had to go right by Megiddo. In addition to the north-south route, there's also a major east-west route that runs right through the Jezreel Valley, which you can still drive on today. So Megiddo is at a junction. It is at a crossroads. And pretty much anyone who came in Uh, especially an invader, had to go right by Megiddo, in part because uh, swamps and the coast and all that, basically you got directed right by it. So Tutmosis III, the famous Egyptian pharaoh who fought at Megiddo in uh, the 15th century BC, he said that the capturing of Megiddo is like the capturing of a thousand cities. And that is very true. It was that important. If you wanted to control the Jezreel Valley, you had to control Megiddo. And if you wanted to control that whole area of ancient Canaan, modern Israel, you have to control the Jezreel Valley. So Megiddo is the prime location. And that's why so many battles have been fought there. Something like 34 have already been fought. Uh, I documented them in a book I wrote about 20 years ago. And uh, who knows how many more are going to be fought in the future uh, before we even get to Armageddon. So it was a major city for most of its history. It does peter out by the time Alexander the Great comes through. The mound itself is abandoned. And after that, like the Romans, they build a camp, a fortified camp, but it's off the mound. And that's one of the big mysteries is why was the mound abandoned? Personally, I think the water might have given out. You can still see the water tunnel there, but there's no water in it anymore. But there has to be a good reason why you live at a place for 5,000 years and then suddenly abandon it. And losing your water source, I think, is as good a reason as any. That was going to be my next question, actually, why was it abandoned, which you very kindly answered. But with that magnificent water tunnel at the city, that's quite late, isn't it? If I remember rightly, is it Iron Age that that's dated to? This excellent question, because we don't actually know. It's still debated. So this is, it's a an amazing water tunnel um, for those that haven't been to Megiddo and gone down to the tunnel, you must go. It's the end of the tour. It goes straight down about 100 feet, which I guess would be about 30 meters, and then it goes out 300 feet, about 100 meters, to get to the water source. When they were first excavating it, the Chicago team that started digging it in about 1930, 1931, they originally thought it had been dug in the late Bronze Age, maybe the Middle Bronze Age. So somewhere between, say, 1700 or 1600 BC down through about 1200. Later, though, Yigal Yudin, when he was digging there, he wanted to, he redated it, and he thought it was Iron Age. He actually thought it might be the time of King Solomon in the 10th century. There are some pottery sherds that were found in it while Chicago was digging, which seemed to indicate that it is in use then for hundreds of years. Uh, There may have been even like an attic black glaze figure, a piece of pottery that might have been from the 6th or 5th or 4th century BC. But as to when it was actually dug, that is still debated. I personally favor an early date 
I kind of look at it as possibly Middle Bronze Age. And I say that in part because there are other sites with water tunnels, including uh, Hatsor uh, and Jerusalem and Gezer. And Gezer, they've been excavating it recently, and their most current findings are that that was probably dug in the Middle Bronze Age. And it looks so similar to ours. And since the Middle Bronze Age is a possibility, I'm thinking that ours might be that early as well. It's a bit tough, though, because it was nearly completely excavated by Chicago. And they were trying to figure out which layers did it cut through, you know, because that could help you figure out when it was made. And even that, they went back and forth. So there is no easy or short answer, but... There are three possibilities, Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age, or Iron Age. So it's one of the three, but um, there's no way to tell, I would say, at the moment, to everyone's satisfaction. You've got adherence to all three dates. That's that's really interesting, because if it was the Iron Age, I was going to say, well, what did they do earlier for water? So it, it would make sense to me as well that it, it could have been uh, Middle Bronze Age too. Yes. Uh, and because it was quite a large city at that time, wasn't there? Yes, they're fairly large. I mean, not huge, but fairly large. A couple of hundred, mm. couple of thousand people living there. Do realize, though, the, the water was always available. What they did, the water was a spring outside the city walls for much of the period until they dug the tunnel. And what they did at that point was to hide the water source, which we know was done at other sites and in other countries, including like at Mycenae in Greece. So they hid the water so that an attacker couldn't see where it was. And then they dug the tunnel so that you could get at it from inside. So I always tell my students there are three things you need when you start a city. You need food, you need water, and you need defense. And Megiddo had all three of those, but as it developed, they found the need to hide the water source so that they couldn't be thirsted into submission by Mm -hmm. a besieging army. So they always had the water, but they didn't always have the tunnel. So the question is, at what point did they feel the need to camouflage the water source? And that's where, for me, the Middle Bronze Age comes in, because that's when they built the huge wall around the city, or one of the huge walls, out of uh, mud brick which gives the mound its shape, right? That's a lot of the tells in Israel and Syria, Lebanon, have the round shape because of these fortified glacis that were built, many of them in the Middle Bronze Age. And so that's what I would suspect is that while they're building the fortification wall, they're also building the tunnel because otherwise they've just cut themselves off from the water. So I would tend to put everything in Middle Bronze Age uh, until proven otherwise. And who were they building the walls for or against at that time? They so are it's too early for the Sea Peoples, isn't it? Uh, too early for them, if we're talking Middle Bronze Age. Sea Peoples come in at the end of the Late Bronze Age, in about 1200. Mm. So if they're building these walls 1700 BC, give or take, uh, we're talking Canaanites at that time who would have been living at Megiddo, but we've also got people moving around like the Amorites, whom the Bible mentions. And especially the first couple of centuries of the second millennium, say from 2000 BC down to 1800 or a little bit later, 
is a time of great movement in the ancient Near East. This is maybe the time period when Abraham and the patriarchs are moving around. So this is a time period where we see quite a few of the of the cities becoming fortified. And it may be that some of the newcomers are bringing that technology with them. I remember somebody making the argument that at Tel Dan, way up in the north of Israel, which has the earliest mud brick arch found, which dates to this time period, the Middle Bronze Age, and they were making an argument that the technology had also had actually been brought from Mesopotamia at that time such as, you know, they, that's supposedly where Abraham is coming from, or the Chaldees and mm. all that. So I think it's a time of, of turmoil, a time of, of great movement, and that would be exactly the time when you want to protect your own interest and property. We have a question here from Laura Carbonell, who says, I think history repeats itself. If so, what lessons can we learn from the battles of Armageddon? Right. Well, I would agree with Laura. First of all, I do think history repeats itself. Um, two, of my, two of my favorite sayings uh, actually puts a twist on one of them. Mark Twain supposedly said history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I think that's a pretty good one. But then, of course, you've got uh, George Santayana, who supposedly said that those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it, to which I would say those of us who do study history are doomed to stand on the sidelines and watch why other peoples repeat it. So I think they stole that one off the Internet somewhere. But yes, history does rhyme or repeat itself. But in terms of learning lessons, the main one is just simply that a lot of people have fought at Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley, but for all sorts of reasons. Each of the battles differed in terms of why they were fighting and who was fighting. And of course, the weapons and technology changed as well. The only thing that stayed constant was the geography of the area and the fact that you did have to control it. Napoleon did supposedly say that the Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley was the most perfect battleground on the face of the earth. And indeed, if you do a Google search for Napoleon and Megiddo and Jezreel Valley on the internet, you will come up with lots of people saying he said that. I've looked through pretty much everything Napoleon ever wrote, and I can't find that he said that. I think he was actually talking about Belgium rather than Megiddo. But so, but Napoleon did say, supposedly, you know, and I would agree, and we had talked earlier about Megiddo being one of my favorite sites. When I was looking out over the Jezreel Valley at five in the morning, I would imagine in my mind the various armies marching up and down the valley. I could see them in my mind's eye because you've got everyone, Napoleon included, but also uh, all the biblical people, Deborah and Barak, Saul and Jonathan, Josiah. You've got all those people. You've got the Greeks and the Romans. You've got the Crusaders, the Mamelukes and the Mongols. So it really was a place where one could do battlefield archaeology if you went out into the valley to excavate it. So that for me was part of the appeal of Megiddo was seeing again in my mind's eye the armies that had marched past and that had fought. But in terms of actual lessons, I think the main lessons we can learn is that 
nothing's ever really been resolved from that. So there have been 34 battles fought. Maybe we should stop fighting there. And and I read in your The Gip Armageddon book as well that I didn't realize you said about was it General Allenby who looked at the Battle of Thothmosis III and emulated it. And I hadn't realized that that was one of the most decisive battles, wasn't it, at the end of First World War? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So this for me, again, was, was absolutely fascinating that we know the techniques that Thutmosis III used to capture the city back in the 15th century BC. And then fast forward to 1918 and Edmund Allenby in charge of the Allied forces. He had been sent a battle plan from London as to how to fight a battle at Megiddo, and he abandoned the official plan in favor of redoing, using again, the same battle plan that Thutmosis III had used, and it worked. It, it absolutely worked. He redid it right down to the letter. Basically, there are three ways that he could have gotten to Megiddo. There's a, a northern route and a southern route that are wide open and, and easy to march on, but will take longer. And then there's a central route that is much faster, more direct, but is narrow and is susceptible to ambush. And so Thutmosis III gambled that the Canaanites wouldn't think he was that stupid to go through the middle, and they'd be waiting at the north and the south, and so he went up the middle. And that's exactly right. Canaanites were waiting at the north and the south and had left Megiddo undefended. So Allenby did the exact same thing. And sure enough, they went through the central route and made it through uh, unattacked, captured Megiddo. Uh, he did, I should say, though he sent the Australians through first. <laughs> he sent the, uh, the Australian contingent through, but they went through unscathed. And so he was uh, able to redo the battle 3,400 years later. And I think the, the interesting end to the story is the fact that Allenby, about a year later, met up in Cairo with James Henry Breasthead, who was the new director of the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. And Breasthead said to Allenby, how did you know to redo the battle tactics of Thutmosis III. And Allenby looked at Breasted and said, well, I had read your book. And indeed, Breasted, back in 1906, had published in English, in his book, Ancient Records of Egypt, he had published an English translation of Thutmosis III's account. Allenby had read it and decided to do it. And so at either that uh, conversation or one soon thereafter, Breasthead said to Allenby, we're looking for a new site to excavate. Where do you think I should dig? And Allenby said, well, why don't you go dig Megiddo and see if you can find the city that Thutmosis III captured? And Breasthead that said, that's a great idea. And also, while I'm at it, why don't I try and locate the city that Solomon built there? Because the Hebrew Bible says that. So when Breasted went looking for funding and approached John D. Rockefeller Jr. to get the money, he told him that he was going to look for both Tutmosis III and for Solomon. And lo and behold, he got the money, which allowed Chicago to excavate at the site for 15 years, from 1925 to 39. So that whole Thutmose III battle being redone by Allenby successfully, which won 
you know, the battle for Allenby, and he, in fact, became known. He took the title. People called him jokingly Allenby of Armageddon, but his official title was Lord Allenby of Megiddo and Felixstowe, which was the ancestral home. So all of that is what then led Chicago to start digging at the site. So it all comes around. It's all linked. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I love it that somebody actually did learn from history for once, you know, because I spend a lot of time going, if only they'd, if only they'd taken note of it. So it, I was really pleased when I read that. Yes, yes. It's too bad from their point of view that the opposing uh, Ottoman army hadn't also read Breastad's book because then they would have known how to defend it. Excellent. Okay, now this is a good question from Judy Ridgely. And she asks, why are historical sites buried so deep? And where does all that dust come from that one can build a town over it? So this is an excellent question, and one that my students ask me all the time. They're like, you know, why is everything buried so deep? And I do, I answer this a little bit in my Three Stones Make a Wall book and uh, the new spinoff that's called Digging Deeper, How Archaeology Works. So I explain it a little bit, but let me just say here briefly, first of all, not all sites are buried deeply, and some aren't buried at all, like the ones that are overgrown by jungle down in South and Central America. But the short answer is that it really depends upon the environment in the area of the site. Some of it really is dust, as Judy asks about. Think of your house or your apartment when you don't dust it for a couple of weeks or longer. If you leave to go on a dig for three months, you come back and there's dust everywhere. Well, multiply that by by months, if not years, and you could see how it might accumulate. And that would simply be like wind blowing it in there. But actually, most of the dirt rather than dust, but most of the dirt that's there comes from either accumulation after the site is abandoned due to erosion or other forces where Mother Nature moves the dirt around, but it is often the result of inhabitants bringing in earth to flatten a level so they can build again. So let's take Megiddo, for example. There are 20 levels, one on top of another. And in a number of cases, the city was destroyed by an earthquake or an invader or something. The survivors, when they come back and recover, they sometimes will kind of move all of the debris off the mound. But other times, they leave the debris and simply bring in earth to cover it over and flatten it and make a new level surface so that they can build the next city. And so right there, you can suddenly have anywhere from half a meter to three meters of earth that somebody has brought in, and then you get your next city. So there is no one-size-fits-all answer there, but it, it can be different depending on each site. The one thing to keep in mind, and this goes back to what Judy has asked, is that you can be looking at an ancient site where you have 10 centimeters that represent a century, or you could have 10 centimeters of this dirt and dust 
that represents six months of occupation. So you have to be very careful when you're doing your excavating and figure out the stratigraphy so that you don't accidentally blow through an entire level and erase an entire chunk of the mound's history because you've been digging too fast or too carelessly. Fantastic, thank you. Let's move on to your book now that was called 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed. Because I love that, because it's like, how did you come up with 1177 as the exact date there, Eric? (laughs) Well, okay, so there's two parts to that answer. How did I come up with 1177, the year that civilization (laughs) collapsed? Well, okay, so we mentioned the Sea Peoples in passing earlier. The Sea Peoples are these uh, disparate groups of people that come and attack Egypt twice at the end of the Late Bronze Age. And well, we can date them to 1207 and 1177. And that's where that year comes from. However, I have to say, first of all, with a caveat, that a better way to date it would have been the fifth year of one king and the eighth year of another, because, of course, they didn't use 1207 and 1177. So depending on which Egyptologist you talk to, the eighth year and the fifth year, they'll give you a different number in our terms. So in fact, when I first started writing the book, the original title was 1186, the year that civilization collapsed. And But as I was writing the book, I decided to follow the chronology of an Egyptologist named Kenneth Kitchen, who uh, worked at Liverpool in England, and he put that year, that second invasion, at 1177, so I followed that. A better way to to title it would have been to call it, you know, the eighth year of Ramses VIII or something like that, Ramses Third, But anyway, so that's where that number comes from. But I will also say that it's not entirely accurate because civilization did not collapse that year. That is simply a benchmark. That's the year that the Sea Peoples came a second time. And I actually, I have to tell you, I fought against the title the entire time I was writing the book. Because I said civilization at the end of the Late Bronze Age actually takes up to a century to collapse. It didn't just happen in one year. And so my my editor, Rob Tempio, said, well, you know, okay, smarty pants, what would you call the book? And I said, well, the better way to describe it is that um, life in 1200 BC was very different from life in 1100 BC and completely different from 1000 BC. And he's like, well, that might be true and accurate, but that won't fit on the cover of a book. <laughs> so... He said, and I would agree, he says, look, 1177 is shorthand. It's shorthand. And I would agree. So in the book, I actually do say that when we're teaching our children that uh, about the fall of Rome, we frequently say it fell in 476 AD. It didn't fall that year. That was just one year that events happened. It actually took more than you know the fifth century for Rome to fall. And even then, the eastern half didn't fall, right? Byzantine, Istanbul, Constantinople kept going, but it's shorthand. So for me, and especially since most people have never heard of the Late Bronze Age, let alone its collapse, that giving them a date that they can hang their hat on, as it were, is nine-tenths of the battle. 
So 1177 is to the fall of the Bronze Age, as 476 is to the fall of Rome, is what I would say. But that is a very long answer to your easy question, where did the date come from? It's the date that the Sea Peoples invaded Egypt for the second time. Fantastic, thank you. (laughs) And talking about the Sea Peoples, we actually have a question from Margaret Ann James, who's the academic dean from Riverfield County Day School. And she asks about the Sea Peoples. My students and I have always been fascinated with the fragments of history that allude to the Sea Peoples. We would like to know if there has been any new definitive archaeology discovered that can shed some more light on who these people were and if and where they finally settled. Also, was the theory of volcano the catalyst for the creation of this confederation of people? Ah, excellent questions. So let's see, let me start with the second part, the eruption of the Thera volcano. No, it was not the catalyst for the creation of this confederation of the Sea Peoples, mostly because it happened much earlier, by a couple of centuries. There's still a dispute about the date, but most people would say it's either 1628 BC or about 1550 BC. Either way, that is several centuries earlier than the period that we're talking about with the Sea Peoples, which are, you know, the end of the 13th century BC. The eruption of of Thera or Santorini does impact the Minoans on Crete at that time, but they bounce back from it. It's actually a very good example, I would say, uh, of society's resilience when you're only hit with one catastrophe. You know, a lot of people will die, but you don't, your entire civilization doesn't disappear. So it's not linked to the eruption of Thera, which a lot of people think, but it's not, because that's much earlier. So if it's not the eruption of Thera that was the catalyst, what is it? The evidence is pointing more and more to a mega drought a drought that lasted between 150 and 300 years. And there is much more scientific evidence for that now that this drought stretched from, uh, in modern day terms, from the area of Italy all the way over to Iraq and Iran and from Turkey down to Egypt. And that seems to be the catalyst that began the Sea Peoples moving. I happen to think they come from the region of Italy, Sicily, Sardinia, which does show not only a drought at about 1200 BC, but also uh, a mass exodus of people. Uh, That's some very new findings. So rather than an eruption of volcano, I would say it is a mega drought. Now, in terms of new definitive archeology, span that can shed more light on them. This is actually still one of history's great mysteries, is who were the Sea Peoples, and where did they come from, and where did they go? So the early Egyptologists thought that they started out in the Eastern Mediterranean, like in the region with Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and that after the Egyptians defeated them, they went over to the Western Mediterranean, to Italy, Sicily, Sardinia. Now I and many people think it's reversed and that they came from those regions. So one group of the Sea Peoples is known as the Shardana, which sounds a lot like Sardinia, and another is the Shekelesh, which sounds a bit like Sicily. So I think they're coming from that region, though that's still a guess. We don't have any sites 
that have been excavated where we can definitively say, ah, this is a Sea People site, this is where they came from. We don't have that yet. I'm hopeful we will get that. But in the meantime, the most exciting discovery has been found on the other side of things, namely at the site of Ashkelon in what is now modern-day Israel. And in July of 2019, just two years ago or so, they announced that they had some new ancient DNA evidence from four infants that had been found buried under the floors of houses that dated to about a hundred years after the invasion of the Sea Peoples. So these four little infants were not Sea Peoples themselves, but they would have been the descendants of them, maybe their grandkids. The DNA showed that those four kids had about 50% local Canaanite DNA and 50% DNA from elsewhere. And when they ran the computer models, it fit best with Crete or Sicily and Sardinia, with Spain being another possibility. So these four infants seem to be the descendants of, I would say, sea peoples that came in and assimilated, intermarried or whatever, had kids. And that these are then maybe the kids of the kids, which means that the sea peoples coming from elsewhere may actually be real. And the area with these burials, there were Philistine pots, jars, flasks, bowls. And the Philistines, according to the Hebrew Bible, come from Crete. And they also... Uh, the Philistines, their pottery looks like kind of degenerate Mycenaean from mainland Greece, as if Mycenaeans like Agamemnon and those guys had come over to the region of Canaan and were making their pottery but using local clay. And so this new DNA evidence indicates that at least one of the groups of the Sea Peoples, because the Philistines are identified as the Polesset of the Sea Peoples, that at least one does come from somewhere to the west, the Aegean or the Western Mediterranean. So for me, that ancient DNA evidence, which is literally brand new, is the most exciting piece of the puzzle that we have yet found because it corroborates everything else that we already thought we knew from other branches of archaeology. Now, the, the main problem is that basing this just on four young kids is too small a sample. It's just too small. We need more of these ancient skeletons and more testing of their DNA to really find out if we're correct about this. But I am confident that we are on the correct path and that we will hopefully fairly soon figure out the answer to the question that is being asked here. Where did they come from? Where did they go? Exactly who are they? So we haven't yet solved it, but stay tuned. I think we will in the fairly near future. That's amazing about the DNA. It's just technology these days. It's yeah. just, just so exciting. Yeah, absolutely so. amazing. We have two other related questions about the Bronze Age collapse. <clears throat> 
but neither person have left their names. However, their questions are, what have been the latest discoveries regarding the Bronze Age collapse that excite you the most? And which archaeological sites seem promising for other new findings regarding the causes of the Bronze Age collapse? So in terms of the latest discoveries that excite me the most, I would have to say that it is the DNA that we just talked about. I think that is the absolute most exciting and most promising. But which archaeological sites are promising for other new findings? That is more difficult to answer. What I really want to, uh, to say is that any site that's got levels dating to this time period, the time of the late Bronze Age collapse, that is going to be promising no matter where they are in the region. And a lot of the major mounds uh, in, in Israel today, like Hatzor, Lachish, uh, even Jerusalem, they've all got levels dating to this time period. So it could, we could find stuff at any and all of them. What I really want to see, though, is to see if we can figure out where they came from. So that's where I'm thinking excavations in Sardinia or in Sicily are going to be the most promising because right now we don't have anything to link the Bronze Age in Sardinia to the Sea Peoples. But I think it must be there. That's what my archaeological intuition is telling me. So I would say that that is the most promising, mostly because we don't have any yet. So I, again, and as always in archaeology, I would say stay tuned. But uh, somebody asked me a couple of years ago, if, if a private donor were to give you a million dollars, where would you go dig? And that would be my answer is if I could get permission, it would be somewhere in Sicily and Sardinia searching for the origins of the Sea Peoples. That's an excellent answer. And if you didn't have a million dollars, are you still going to try and dig there? <laughs> I, would, I would love to go and dig there, but I would probably, I would probably have to link up with a local archaeologist uh, and do a cooperative dig, which would be great, which would be great. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I, would, I would not certainly okay. write that off as a possibility. Fantastic. What is next for you? I saw that you were appointed a Getty Scholar, congratulations, which you plan to take up later this year, I believe. So what does that involve exactly? Yeah, so I had actually been appointed a Getty Scholar for this past fall, but the pandemic closed everything down and postponed it. So I'll be doing that this coming fall. They, are, they do things on themes, and the theme now is connections between Phoenicia and Greece. And so I am going to be there actually working on the sequel to 1177. My editor wants me to answer the question of what happened after the fall. And as it happens, that ties in with some questions that are being asked by a lot of archaeologists these days and ancient historians in terms of resilience and transformation. When your society, when your civilization does collapse, what do you do? Do you completely disappear? Do you adapt? Do you transform? How resilient are you? And of course, that's got uh, implications and lessons for us today, right? So this is another example of 
using ancient history to maybe learn lessons for today. So the book that I'm going to be working on at the Getty is simply called After 1177, and it deals with the Iron Age, which some people call the Dark Age. It's the next four centuries. It goes from 1176 down to 776 right now. That is, in some ways, an arbitrary stopping point because it's simply... 400 years, but in other ways it's not arbitrary at all because 776 BC is uh, considered to be the year that the first Olympics were held in Greece. And for me, that is a sign that they've come back up out of the Dark Ages and they are back on the world stage as it were. So, but I'm still playing around with what year I'm going to end it. There are other years that would work just as well, but for now it's basically the next 400 years uh, and I will be showing what you do. What do you do when your civilization has collapsed? What's next? And so that'll be a lot of fun. I've already um, got about half of it written, at least a rough draft of it. And so I'll be uh, researching and writing the other half. My deadline is the end of December of this year. So I've got my work cut out for me. But uh, the idea would be for it to appear probably sometime in early 2023. So... In the meantime, we just put out a revised version, an updated version of 1177, which brings it right up to 2019-2020, referring to it as the pandemic edition of the book, but it includes lots of new data. And most fun of all, I'm working with Glennis Falks, an archaeologist and illustrator, and uh, she is creating a graphic version of 1177. So basically, the fall of the Bronze Age in cartoon form. So that will be coming out as well. So lots of exciting projects in the next 12 to 18 months, I would say. Oh, they sound fantastic. And I can't wait to see them, particularly the cartoon version. <laughs> yes. I think, yeah. I think that's, gonna, that's gonna be great. Oh, well, thank you, Eric, so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I hope we can catch up with you perhaps when your new book is out. That would be wonderful. I would love that. It's been great talking to you. And I really appreciate the time today. Mm-hmm.